Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. This is about, just so you know, this is about the number that we expected. You guys are just, uh, just about perfect because we, you know, I know that, um, that, of course, at the Institute we're known for big crowds, um, but how many of those that are in attendance are there uh, for serious education, okay, and those that are there because they need a social outlet. Both of those are valid reasons, and most of us, I hope, are there for both. Um, but, uh, but we certainly want to make sure that you, who are maybe even more serious about the education you're receiving, the opportunity that you're receiving, have the chance to dive deeper into what we're doing and how we're doing it and why we're doing it so that we can continue to grow together. And as we grow together intellectually, as I oftentimes have said and will say again and again and again, you cannot love what you do not know. All of us want to love the Lord more deeply. And so um, we're given this opportunity to learn about him and uh, that opportunity is given to us by the gift of himself, okay, through the incarnation, through revelation, but also, as we'll be talking about today, through the story of salvation history and how important our history is because our history is the revelation, not just of things that happened, Okay, but the, the revelation of the interaction between God and his people. History itself is revelatory if you read it with faith. Uh, and in that way, history becomes, in some ways, salvific. It becomes sacramental. It, it is a way in which we encounter the living God. Um, and so today we have a chance to look uh, maybe a little closer at that. Uh, what's our plan for the day? Because this is a first at the Institute doing this kind of um, uh, Duke and Altum kind of thing, if you will. Um, what is, first of all, what does Duke and Altum mean? What's it mean, guys? Yeah, put out in the day. Well, where do we hear about it? What's the first time we hear that phrase? What's it famous from? What's that? He says it to his apostles, right? Go and put out into the deep for a, for a catch. Okay, and, and the, the church has always seen that call of Christ as more than just fishing for fish, but calling the apostles to go out to leave behind them their preconceived notions, to leave behind them their former life, and to go out in faith into the waters. Of course, the waters are in biblical imagery the symbol of the world, which is also the symbol of the realm of the devil. And it's Christ who is now coming to reclaim that realm of death so that he can even go and enter into it to reclaim death itself. 
uh, and to make it a gateway into eternal life. And so he says, put out into the deep. And that's always been the call of the church, to go out in faith to people we don't know, to lands we've never seen, to into conversations that we're not too sure about. Okay, why? To bring the good news of Christ to those who are in need, to those fish, if you will, who are swimming in that pool of death, that sea. Okay, the waters become a symbol of death for the ancient people because it was there that God parted the waters at the beginning of creation to bring forth the dry ground. It was there in those waters that Noah and his sons crossed while the people perished in the in the in the sea. It was there in the waters that that. Israel crossed when they left Egypt behind and there where Pharaoh and the Egyptians drowned in those waters. So it becomes for us a symbol of death. This is why we immerse babies in baptism, that they might enter into that place, that realm of death with Christ in faith. And as St. Paul says, those who enter into death with Christ will also live again with him in Romans chapter 6. Okay, so Duke and Alton putting out into the deep to try to bring out more out of the opportunity that we have. Okay, and I oftentimes I look out at the Institute and the, the massive number of hours we're invested in education and I know I myself Melanie and Monica also and I'm sure all of you want us to want to be able to make use out of that time as time is a precious thing it's a, it's a gift given to us by God and so those hours given to us at the Institute of Catholic Culture where we're receiving the gift of knowledge from those that know for the purpose that we might grow in the knowledge of God's work and come to love him more so I come back to the question of why knowledge? What does the fall of Constantinople have to do about with anything? I mean, it fell, okay? Constantinople fell. The, the, the city was burned by the Ottoman Turks. In what year? On what day of the week? At what time of day? 2 p.m. on a Tuesday in 1453. Okay, I knew he would know the answer to that. So, um, uh, why is that important? Why is it important that Tuesday at, t at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in 1453, the Ottoman Turks took the greatest city in Christendom and burned it to the ground? Why? Because history is more than a past event. And this is why I sent to you that reading. How many of you re got that reading in your email? How many of you actually read it? Now, come on, be honest. Oh, no, not too bad. It's more than I thought. Okay, four of us. Uh, I know it wasn't an easy reading. It wasn't an easy reading. But I have to tell you, I was reading that outside of a hotel in, in uh, New York the other day as I was waiting to get in the car. And I got, it was amazing. I mean, just like, it was, it, it is that chapter that I sent out is one of the best consolidations of what salvation is that I've ever read outside of, of the scriptures. In that text that Father Robert Taft uh, that wrote, he talks about liturgy, but he also talks about liturgy in the sense of history and how history can become salvific and sanctified. And in its sanctification through faith, it becomes salvific for us. Not just as a past event, but as a reality and a relationship with God which has now changed on this earth. Our interaction with God matters. 
Because those that come to interact with us will be affected by our interaction with God. And therefore, history is salvific. History is an opportunity in which we today can encounter the living God and His relationship with us today in terms of His interaction with us in the past. We'll have an opportunity to talk more about that. Um, our, our plan for the day is um, to talk about our institute curriculum, uh, to take our time talking about our institute curriculum, the kind of the why of it and the how and the what of it. You guys can come. There's, you guys want to sit at a table? Look, I've got three. I'll sell them to you. Okay. All right. All right, at the break, okay. Uh, to talk about the how, what, and why of our curriculum, uh, to apply that, cur- that curriculum to our current schedule, to see how it hangs together in reality, so not just the idea of our curriculum for the Institute, but how it really does hang together in our, in our current schedule. Um, and I hope you got our upcoming schedule, our summer schedule, which is in the back, which we just released today. You're the first ones to see it outside of the Institute office. We'll take a break after that. Um, and uh, and then we'll talk about how to attend an ICC event. Okay, uh, we've got a special guest speaker today who's going to be addressing us, uh, Teresa Cotter. And, uh, and then Melanie will also talk to you about these wonderful notebooks that she put together. Whenever I give Melanie a project like this, she goes way beyond what I could have ever envisioned doing myself. Uh, And so we're very indebted to her for the work she did on that. Uh, And then we'll have an opportunity, hopefully for those that can still stay around for a few minutes, to maybe talk about some of your practical experiences at the Institute and what's worked for you and what hasn't worked for you in your attempt to dive deeper into your education. Maybe say, but Deacon Sabatino, I haven't really tried anything. Uh, Or it's been so minimal, I have nothing to add. Fine. But you might be able to receive something from an insight somebody else had. I know Kristen, for example, was just speaking with somebody and discovered the importance of what she's been doing at the Institute. All of a sudden, she was able to kind of pull things together that formerly had been just random ideas, but she was able to pull them together in a conversation with somebody. And so we'll have an opportunity to talk about that. How does that sound? We're all on the same page. Okay. You have before you your curriculum brochure, so if you could pull that out and open it up, um, I want to just focus on our mission and use our mission as a launching point for talking about our curriculum and the why of our curriculum in a very general sense. Um, So let's you see the you see the mission up there on the left hand side of your of the first opening page there when you open it up. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization faithful to the magisterium of the Catholic Church and dedicated to the Church's call for a new evangelization. The Institute seeks to fulfill its mission by offering education programs structured upon the classical liberal arts and by offering opportunities in which Catholic culture is experienced and lived. I want to look at three points in that mission statement. So if you've got a pen and you want to underline it or you want to write down these three ideas on your notepad, that's up to you. Um, But the first thing is the word catechetical. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization. 
And the second thing I want to look at or talk about, it doesn't mean I'm going to necessarily be able to do these in order because I'm going to be mostly talking off the off the top of my head a little bit. I don't want to just, just lecture at you guys. Uh, the second uh, item there, or theme there that I want to talk about is the new evangelization, in particular the word evangelization. And the third one is not a word, but a phrase at the very end, Catholic culture is experienced and lived. What does it mean and what does it look like to live, or I should say experience and live Catholic culture? Okay, so what does it mean to be catechetical? What is catechesis? I was involved in a conversation with one of our professors that speaks at the Institute, highly regarded professor at Christendom College, and we had a disagreement about what catechesis is. For him, and I'll leave his name out of the, the picture, catechesis was simply, basically doctrine. Memorization of doctrine. What the church teaches, and the memorization of what it teaches. And unfortunately, I'd say for many years in the church, that was what catechesis was. And certainly, there's an aspect of that in catechesis, but it is not the sum total of what catechesis is. Okay, and I bring this word up because you guys say, what does it mean? What is catechesis? And what are we called to do at the Institute of Catholic Culture as a catechetical organization? Okay, and how does that differ from learning facts, memorizing facts, and, this, and the story stops there. What is, what is the difference? And I'll read you from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which I'm sure all of you have in front of you today. Paragraph 426. So if you want to write this down, you can write down CCC, Catechism Catholic Church, paragraph 426. And Catechism is always notated by paragraph, not page number. Okay, because you might have different versions, different pagination, always the paragraph numbers. So paragraph 426. At the heart of catechesis, now they're quoting, um, they're quoting an earlier catechetical document, Catechese Tridende, but at the heart of catechesis we find, in essence, a person. The person of Jesus of Nazareth, the only Son of the Father, who suffered and died for us, and who now, after rising, is living with us forever. To catechize is to reveal in the person of Christ the whole of God's eternal design, reaching fulfillment in that person. Okay, this is exactly what Father Robert Taft was talking about. It is to seek to understand the meaning of Christ's actions and words and of signs worked by him. And now here's the heart of it. Catechesis aims at putting people in communion with Jesus Christ. Period. Catechesis aims at putting people in communion with Jesus Christ. Only he can lead us to the love of the Father in the Spirit and make us share in the life of the Holy Trinity. Okay? 
I'll read that again. Catechesis aims at putting people in communion with Jesus Christ. Only He can lead us to the love of the Father in the Spirit and make us share in the life of the Holy Trinity. Now, I said that it is not simply doctrine. It does not mean that the teachings of the church have no role in catechesis. In fact, they do have a fundamental and major role. But the question is, where is that leading us? Where is our understanding of the faith leading us? What is our goal at the Institute of Catholic Culture as a catechetical organization? It is not simply to be able to tell me that in 1453, on Tuesday, at 2 in the afternoon, the godless Ottoman Turks burned the holy city of Constantinople. Okay? It is to be able to tell me, though, how that event relates to the story of salvation history. To be able to see in that event the relationship between God's work, the work of the evil one seeking the destruction of God's work, and how through that God has brought about the salvation of people even through the evil of the burning of Constantinople. Now at first, you're probably saying, Deacon, I can't do that. How, I mean, what do you mean? The burning of Constantinople has something to do with bringing me salvation. It certainly does. Because God is at work in our history. He's at work here in this room today. We believe as Christians that we're not here by accident or here simply by our own effort, but that God has given us the grace to open the door of salvation to bring us here, yes, even today. He chose us to be here. He chose us to be members of the Institute of Catholic Culture. He chose us for this difficult time in our church when it looks around us very much like that day when the Ottoman Turks burst through the gates of Constantinople, raping the women, pillaging the city, and murdering the children. It looks like that in many ways to us today, maybe in a different fashion. But to be able to discover through that the guiding hand of God whose presence is here to protect us and lead us to salvation. Okay, catechesis is to put us into communion with Jesus Christ. That is the aim of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Everything we do should be oriented in that direction. I want to follow up then that point by reading you a quote that Pope Benedict, I've, I've oftentimes quoted this text from Pope Benedict because it's so beautiful and gets to the point that the, uh, that the catechism is stating here. And he says, one great problem facing the church today is the lack of knowledge of the faith, religious illiteracy. With such illiteracy, we cannot grow. Now, he's not going to say now, therefore go and memorize these aspects of the faith. Notice what he's going to say. Therefore, we must reappropriate the contents of the faith, not as a packet of dogmas and commandments, but as a unique reality revealed in all its profoundness and beauty. In other words, we have to begin to encounter the faith, not simply, not simply intellectually, but also with our heart. That the two must be engaged together to perceive not only dates and facts, but through those dates and facts to perceive a person, the person of Jesus Christ. 
And this is where we come to that aspect of Catholic culture lived and experienced as part of the Institute of Catholic Culture's mission, that our goal is not simply, again, to learn facts, but to begin to live and experience authentic Catholic culture, authentic Catholic way of life. We'll have a chance to talk more about what that looks like. Evangelization. What does it mean to evangelize? What does it mean to evangelize? To witness. Okay, come on, don't be ashamed. You can... That's one, that's one way of describing it, yes? Spread to spread the word. What is the new evangelization? There's a more difficult one to wrap your mind around, right? What is the new evangelization? The new sending out. A new sending out. And the old one's done with. We get rid of that one. It didn't work. <laughs> Try again. New, a new Band-Aid on the wound, right? Because we have a crisis. We all know we have a crisis in our society and in our church. And so therefore, we need a new band-aid that's going to hopefully solve the problem. But when we solve the problem, we're not going to need this anymore, are we? This thing we're calling the new evangelization. Well, yes, it's go- it has to be continual, but why does it have to be continual? I even think maybe the word new is misleading or not so helpful, because if you read the documents of the church on evangelization, on the new evangelization, the church is very clear that we're not talking about teaching something new. I think we're all on the same page on that one. But finding new avenues, new doors which the Spirit opens to us to be able to reach people. Okay, this is why our, our broadcasting is important through the Institute. It's one aspect of the new evangelization. But finding ways in which today, in 2014, we can communicate to others the contents of the faith. And why is that so important today? Why is it so important that we are evangelical as a church? Come on. What's that? It's how we grow. What do you mean by that, Craig? I think that's how we gain more people to just maybe grow up. All right, that's certainly part of it, but I I don't want to simply boil the the work of the evangelization, the work of the Institute down to numbers, because I think that's a a, a disservice to what we're actually trying to do. Yes, Divi? I think it's a personal growth in the faith. It's kind of... For whom? For whom? In myself, so that I can know my faith so that I can then live it and express it and, and okay. witness to it so others get Okay, let me just repeat for those watching online. To re-evangelize ourselves so that... Say it again. So that you can bring it to others, basically, is what you said. Yes? I feel it's to help those that have gone away from the Catholic Church not, not having knowledge or... Or 
Okay, good. To help others who have fallen away to come back. But when they come back, then I would just challenge you to say, then our work of evangelization is over. And here's the problem. And this is, I, I know you don't agree with that. I'm just, but this is, there's a danger, there's a dangerous point there. Because there has been days in our church when we did not evangelize. And I think it's very dangerous to, to look at our current situation and say, we have a crisis in society. We have a crisis in our church. And therefore, well, the church is calling us to evangelize because of the problem and that it's not why the church is calling us to be evangelical. The church is calling us to a new evangelization not because of a problem but because of who we are as a church. The problem, as Dibby's mentioning, is not so much with society first as it is with us and the way we are living as a church because I'll just put this out there to you and we'll come we may even come back to it some more those who are not living an evangelical life those who do not evangelize are not living the Christian call the church is calling us back to a fundamental identity of who we are. And I'll share with you another quotation from Pope Benedict, who says, Leading men and women to God, to the God who speaks in the Bible, this is the supreme and fundamental priority of the church. In fact, Paul VI, I don't have the quotation, so I'll just do it from memory. But Paul VI says, the, the, the identity of the church, the, the, the primary identity of the church is as evangelizers. That is what we are to do as a church. Not in the midst of a crisis, but in the midst of our everyday life of who we are as Catholics. And certainly we are rediscovering that call today in our church, and I hope through the Institute of Catholic Culture. It is a way of life, and I and I, I bring this. I maybe now we can start to bring these things together of a catechetical organization dedicated to evangelization in order to experience and live Catholic culture. All three of these things are intimately tied together as one reality, and it is called mature Christian faith. A mature Christian, one who is living out the faith, is evangelical by nature. So if you say to me, well, Deacon Sabatino, I don't really feel like an evangelical Catholic. I don't feel, that sounds very Protestant. Very Protestant. I'll say, you know what? Yeah, it might sound Protestant to you, it's just because they stole it. Okay? Evangelization, bringing the good news to others, is what the church is called to do. It's what the apostles were called to do in the Gospel of Matthew, to go out and teach all nations everything I have taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Yes, Bill? Don't we have to be careful of that? That's the trap that people maybe fall into. It's the job of the church. Okay, very good. So Bill's saying for those watching online, isn't this the trap? Isn't it the job of the church versus what, Bill? Versus my job. So I'm going to come right back at you, Bill, and say, Bill, 
what is the church? Okay, and I don't. I know you're going to say that. I know everybody in this room could say that. I mean, I hope to God you would say that. We know it. The church is not, you know, the two by four mansion that Jesus built up in, on the cloud, right? Okay, we know what the teaching of the church is. We know what Saint Paul says. But don't let those words just kind of wash out. That's nice. Very Vatican II of you. We are the church. Okay? No, this is the biblical faith. That we are the church of Jesus Christ. We are the community gathered together and made one in Christ. Which gives us our identity through baptism. St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, Do you not know that you have been baptized into Christ's death? You have been baptized into Jesus Christ, which gives us our fundamental identity as Christians. Paul VI says, Christ is the great evangelizer. Christ is the great evangelizer. And so I was going to ask you the question, after reading you that quotation, leading men and women to God, to the God who speaks in the Bible, this is the supreme and fundamental priority of the church. Why? I would guess that if I had read that quote to you and said, hearing holy confession, or building more churches, or... Something, I don't know, you choose your other phrase you might want to, to hear, giving Holy Communion out. Now, I want to be careful because I don't want to divide these two things. They are intimately connected. The sacramental life of the church and the evangelical life of the church, intimately connected. In fact, they are one reality. Well, why is this the fundamental identity of the church? To bring people to salvation through Jesus Christ. But why? Why is that our identity as a church? Because God loves us and wants us to be with Him in heaven. Thank you, Debbie. Because God loves us and wants us to be with Him in heaven, I need you to flesh that out, but you are absolutely fundamentally right. Because God loves us, our fundamental identity is leading others to God. Our fundamental identity is evangelical because God loves us. Tie this together for me, friends. Yes? Well, I believe Jesus said the most important thing was to know God. And I think all the things you're talking about, the sacraments, the church, the word, is all, and that Jesus came to reveal God. Okay, and when we come to know God... How do we come to know him? Who is he? Who is he? I want a definition coming right out of the Bible that God is, Dibby, God is love. We're starting to tie some things together now. God is love. What is love? What does it mean to love someone? Self-sacrificial. Yeah, that's a, fa- a fancy words, though. Come on. Make that make sense to me. What does it mean to love another? All giving. All giving. All giving. Absolutely. This is the fundamental nature of love. No greater love hath any man than to give his life for his friend. Because if you give your life, there's nothing left to give. You've given your whole self. Love is the gift of self to another. 
the sharing of your life. God is love, and we know that God is love because God has poured out His life to us, and we are made in His image and likeness. There's a connection now between our identity and God's identity because from all eternity, God has lived a life of loving communion in the Holy Trinity. We are made in the image and likeness of that God who from all eternity has poured His life out, the Father into the Son in the Holy Spirit. Living a life of loving communion, we are made in the image and likeness of that God who has lived a life of love from all eternity, pouring His life out within the life of the Holy Trinity. Does that make sense? Leading men and women to God is the fundamental priority of the church. Not because it's a problem. Not because of society. Why? I go back to you, why? Why? Why can we say the fundamental nature of the church is to be evangelizers? Why, Macrina? In whose image and likeness are we made? And who is God? God is love. God is the one who shares his life from all eternity. And therefore, made in his image and likeness, what are we meant to do? To share our life with others. The new evangelization or evangelization is not about solving a problem. Well... Certainly the church is calling us to solve a problem, but it's not a problem outside of us. It's the church calling us back to be who we're meant to be in the image and likeness of Christ who is the great evangelizer, who is the one who gives his life for his friend. We are called to do just that. But to do that, we first have to know God, don't we? Knowledge and love, or knowledge and evangelization, or knowledge and catechesis always go hand in hand. You cannot love what you do not know. I'll finish that quote I shared with you earlier from Pope Benedict. One great problem facing the church today is the lack of knowledge of the faith, religious illiteracy. With such illiteracy, we cannot grow. Therefore, we must reappropriate the contents of the faith, not as a packet of dogmas and commandments, but as a unique reality lived in all of its profoundness and beauty. We must encounter, experience, we must live the Catholic faith. We must live the life which Jesus Christ has shared with us. A beautiful quotation from, from the catechism that I, that I... Well, I didn't quite stumble upon it, but... Paragraph 521. It says, Christ enables us to live in Him all that He Himself lived, and He lives it in us. By His incarnation, He, the Son of God, has in a certain way united Himself with each man. We are called only to become one with Him, for He enables us as the members of His body to share in what He lived for us in His flesh as a model. We must continue then to accomplish in ourselves. Listen to this. We must accomplish in ourselves the stages of Jesus' life. 
and His mysteries, and often to beg Him to perfect and realize them in us and in His whole church. For it is the plan of the Son of God to make us and the whole church partake in His mysteries and to extend them and to continue them in us and His whole church. For for this is His plan for fulfilling His mysterious love in us. We accomplish in our own life the life of the Son of God. But that life, the life of the Son of God, is not something simply... 2,000 years ago. Salvation history and the interaction of God with men is not something that took place at one time simply in Palestine, in Galilee, in Jerusalem. It takes place in every day, in every age, when God interacts with His people and when in faith they respond to Him in love and manifest in history, in our lives, is a new reality and that reality is called the life of God on earth incarnate. The incarnation lived out in our own life. Notice what Pope Benedict does after mentioning this profound beauty that he calls us to experience. Watch what he does next. We must do everything possible for catechetical renewal in order for the faith to be known, for God to be known, for Christ to be known, the truth to be known, and then for for unity in truth to grow. Once we know, then we can love. We cannot live a childhood of faith. Many adults have never gone beyond the first catechesis, meaning they cannot, as adults, with competence and conviction, explain to others, explain and elucidate the philosophy of the faith. It's wisdom, it's rationality, in order to illumine the minds of others. To do this, they need an adult faith. In other words, the crisis in the church begins with a lack of knowledge, and that lack of knowledge becomes manifest or incarnate in our life, which is lived out in love. We cannot be evangelical unless we know the one who is evangelical unless we experience His interaction with men over and over again so that we can read into the story of salvation history, that we can see into the story of salvation history, that we can see through the walls of Constantinople and through the lives of the saints and the sinners to be able to see beyond the simple surface historical reading to the reading of salvation history, to the experience of the thumbprint, if you will, of God, the hand of God, which is leading creation ultimately to Him. Knowledge of the faith does not mean simply knowing the facts. It means remembering what God has done in the Christian sense. I've shared with you that quotation from Pope Francis. I'll do it again and again. Macrina, did you want to say something? Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I only talk about knowledge. About knowledge, okay. Knowledge and Jesus are the same. Okay. Why do we have to have knowledge about Jesus? 
because knowledge is just the power. Right. So my experience, unless I learn a lot about Jesus, and I have to be filled with the knowledge of the Jesus, that puts his love. I'm trying to love you worldly, because the finite love, it doesn't last. So I have to get all the knowledge about Jesus, and all plus knowledge from Jesus, that is love. And let me, yes, and those watching online, which is saying how intimately knowledge and love are connected because through knowledge, knowing Jesus Christ, we'll begin to know how to love our neighbor because it's Jesus who first loved us. Okay? But let me go one step further with you, Macrina, that, that knowledge of Jesus Christ gives you knowledge about yourself. You cannot know who you are, and I cannot know who I am unless we know the one in whose image and likeness we've been made. And to know that, we have to be able to see and hear God as He has interacted with us from the beginning of the world. And this is why Pope Francis says, a Christian with no memory is not a true Christian. He is a halfway Christian, a man or a woman who is a prisoner of the moment who does not know how to treasure his history, how to read it, and listen to this, how to read it and live it as the history of salvation. A Christian who has no memory is a prisoner. A prisoner who does not know where he has come from, and ultimately, because he does not know where he has come from, he will not know where he is going. I'll read you that, uh, a little snippet from that text I sent out in the me- email from Father Robert Taft. I hope it makes sense to you. If it doesn't, maybe we can unpack it a little bit later, but I don't want to run out of time and leave nothing for um, the other sections. He says this, The salvation manifest in the past lives on now as an active force in our lives if we encounter it anew and respond to it in faith. And we cannot, know, we cannot do that unless we remember it, making present the past saving events as a means of encountering in every generation the saving work of God. These past events create and manifest and remain bearers of a new and permanent quality of existence that we call salvation. The past event is the efficacious sign of God's eternal saving activity. As past, it is contingent. But the reality it initiates and signifies is neither past nor contingent, but ever present to God and through faith to us at every moment of our lives. This is the point of the Institute of Catholic Culture, to be able to begin to read the writings of the great men and women that have gone before us, to be able to see them in their proper historical context of why they were writing writing and saying and doing what they were doing. To be able to encounter men and women who have gone before us who themselves have encountered Jesus Christ.
Christ. And through encountering them and seeing in their story the work of God, we will begin to recognize in our own lives the signpost, if you will, the signs, the, the, the road signs, the road maps for our own story of salvation. We'll be able to recognize in our own life the hand of God, the same hand which touched Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the same hand that touched David the same hand that touched Peter, the same hand that touched the great saints that have come before us. This is the purpose of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I want to turn very quickly to our curriculum to take a look at it. But to finish that point, one last item that I think is critical is that we will never as Christians, as human beings, be happy unless we are doing what we just talked about. Unless we are doing what God does, sharing His life with others. That is who we are made to be in His image and likeness. And we will never be happy in life unless we are doing that. That is why sin, is the what we call sin, is the exact opposite of that. Sin is the turning in on ourselves. Grace, the life of virtue, Christianity is all a matter of turning outward. If we want to be happy as Christians, if we want to be happy as human beings, we must become habitually evangelizers. Our life must be about sharing the gift we have received with others. And when we do that, we will be happy. And to the extent that we don't do that, we will not be happy in this life or the next. Okay. Okay, our, I want to talk quickly about our curriculum because I want you to be able, oftentimes at the Institute, I, I mentioned the curriculum, but I don't have enough time to develop it and speak with you about it. So I want to spend just a few minutes looking at that and explain to you again what you've heard me say a hundred times, but I've said it in 30 seconds or less, or maybe sometimes I go on, but maybe just a few more minutes to be able to do this with you, okay? You know that in our curriculum, and you can look at your brochure if it's helpful, that in our curriculum we have our categories of study, our disciplines, in which we perceive in different disciplines, again, that fingerprint of God as He has spoken with man, and man has responded to His calling, or not responded as it might be. Okay? Across the top of your curriculum is the division of our, of our, of our curriculum over the year. But it's not simply divided over the, the seasons of the year. It's divided also according to history. So that the first quarter deals with what? You tell me. Yeah, see, this is why we have to do this. The early, that's right, the ancient world, always leading up to Christmas, which is the end of our first quarter, are you guys all with me there? Yeah, you can make notes all over this thing if you guys want there on your, on your, on your curriculum brochure. If you want to write stuff on it, it's okay. T dealing with the ancient world in all of these different aspects. How did God interact with, with His people? Even among the pagans of Aristotle and Plato, those great men that, that sought after truth according to their ability. Okay? The winter, the winter schedule which goes from Christmas to Easter, deals with the early church. So from the incarnation 
and we deal all the way up through the early church, which, you know, you can, you can, you can argue the stopping point of somewhere in the vicinity of the six, seven hundreds at the beginning of what we may call the medieval world or the middle ages and through the renaissance, which we deal with in the spring where we deal with, with, uh, with medieval and scholastic theology. Okay? Where we deal with medieval and renaissance world in history. Does that make sense? You guys with me? Okay. And then finally in the summertime, the last quarter, we deal with the modern world. Okay, in that modern world, we usually pick up the story right around the, um, the, the 17th century, 18th century, and forward. Okay? I, I'm speaking in vague terms, and I'm doing that intentionally about when we begin and end, because history, it's not as though we close the door in one age and open it to the next. It's the ever-present story of God's interaction with people. And you should have a sense, a general sense, of these time periods of history. You need to be able to know the basic movements of people. The fundamental dates that change Western, the Western world. The great kings, the major wars that cause the shift of people. So that you're able to see in any given institute event where that event fits into the story of salvation history. Yes, Craig? Yeah, quarter three is medieval and renaissance world. You'll see that up there under history. Um, I, I can see you guys don't have that in front of you exactly because we simplified our curriculum brochure this year. But what I want you to know is that, again, ancient world, early, early church, medieval renaissance world, and modern world. Okay, are the four divisions. I need to now, once you have that in your head, I need to break it apart a little bit for you. And trust me, this is fundamentally important so that you don't get confused when you open up a new schedule. Okay? In the areas of Scripture, we don't follow that exact development. Okay? We don't do it. We don't follow it for a, for a specific reason. I want to make sure that every year we're dealing with all the aspects of sacred scripture, so that yes, in the fall during the ancient world time, we're dealing with the Old Testament. Fine. And in the winter or that time period from Christmas to Easter, we're dealing with the Gospels. Perfect. The early church, right? But in the spring, during the medieval and renaissance world, we don't want to forget about the writings of St. Paul and the universal epistles. And so during the spring, when normally we would be dealing with the medieval and renaissance world, acts and epistles will fit in there. And it might throw you off when looking at your curriculum. I want, to sh I want you to open up your current schedule right now that you have in front of you. You'll see in there, in the, in the third quarter, for Scripture, what do you see? Epistle to the Ephesians, right? With Dr. Stephen Smith. It was our speaker this year. Some of you attended that series. Notice it doesn't fit into the medieval and renaissance world very well, does it? But it doesn't because we don't want to miss that part of the scriptures every year by simply moving forward too fast into the medieval and renaissance world. So the scriptures don't really fit perfectly into that schedule of development. And then in the modern world, we deal with biblical apologetics. 
genetics. And so, yes, that kind of does come back and fit in a little bit better with our modern world schedule for quarter four. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm going to move to liturgical studies. And I want to show you something else that's a little bit of a hiccup in the curriculum that might throw you off. As you're, we're dealing with the ancient world, then early church, then medieval renaissance, then modern world, we follow two lines with our liturgical studies. Okay, Both that historical development, but also the feast days of the church. And so let me just show you, if you look up here on your screen for a minute... Notice that in the ancient world, under liturgical studies, we, we deal with Jewish studies or Old Testament liturgical questions, but also the Advent cycle, which may not really exactly have that much to do with the Old Testament story, if you will. It might. Then, under early church, we have early Christian liturgical studies, but we also have Christmas and Lent liturgical cycles. So do you see how that doesn't quite fit in necessarily with the early church time period? The same happens under medieval and renaissance. We don't want to miss out on the festal cycle of Easter and Pentecost. Okay? And then under modern world, again, we have modern liturgical issues and festal days that fall during the summer and the fall. So you'll notice that in quarter four, uh, under liturgical studies, you have Born Without Sin, a study of the Immaculate Conception, which this study will is scheduled a couple of days prior to the Feast of the Nativity of the Mother of God. Not a feast that is as highlighted in the West, more important in the Eastern Church, Churches, but nevertheless, the issue is still relevant to both. And so it fits in there in the modern time period, close to the feast day, if you will. Okay? The other line that you need to know about is if, that, that kind of breaks loose of our curriculum slightly is the catechism. The catechism is divided not according to the time periods of the world, but it's divided according to the parts of the catechism. These are the four parts of the catechism. The creed, the church and the sacraments, spirituality and prayer, and the moral life. So you'll notice that on the modern in the fourth quarter, the schedule you just received has a study of the moral catastrophe, which we find ourselves in today. There's a Dominican nun that's coming to speak for us on that subject. She's a specialist, a specialist in bioethics. Okay, so again, the catechism is divided into four parts. That is something you need to know as Catholics. You have to be familiar with your catechism. And if you're not familiar with the catechism of the Catholic Church, I would recommend you get familiar with it. It's an excellent text, very well written, and very well divided. Okay, so I would encourage you to have your catechism on you almost all the time. I say almost because of Bible you have to have on you all the time. So your catechism almost all the time, okay? And you should be working through your catechism. As at the Institute, as we encounter different topics, you need to be going into your catechism to be bringing those topics to life, dealing with the subject at hand. Because if you come to an Institute event, and we'll have a chance to talk about this more later, if you come to an Institute event, 
totally unprepared, completely out of context, what are you going to get out of it? It's going to be mostly entertainment. And in the end of the day, yes, we have some more entertaining speakers and some less entertaining speakers. But at the end, at the end of the day, there's a reason why Brendan McGuire is not working in Hollywood. He's not an entertainer. He's an educator. And to be educated, you have to prepare yourself. You have to do the work necessary. So when you find yourself in a particular quarter, in a particular time period in our, in our curriculum, you want to be doing the work necessary before and after an event to be tying things together for yourself. You say, Deacon Sabatino, I don't have time for that. I'd say, fine, you don't have time for the Institute. The Institute is an hour that you're dedicating. Sometimes, I mean, I'm sorry, sometimes three, four times a week. Sometimes the craziness of having a double header on one weekend. Okay? You put in a lot of hours. Don't waste that investment by living on the entertainment level. Take 15 minutes. Take five minutes and Google something. Wikipedia. Okay, I'm sorry to recommend Wikipedia, but sometimes you got to pick up a date really fast. You can do it. Okay, I've been using my stupid phone like crazy like that because you can say something and do it. It's like it's got all the knowledge in the world right there built into it. All right. Yes. What was the topic for the third quarter? First was creed, second quarter was sacraments. Yes, spirituality and prayer. The catechism uses uses the Our Father as its structure for prayer. So we will always be diving into questions of, of our prayer life during that time, okay? Now, I said you need a basic framework basic framework of history to be able to really start to draw out of what we're doing uh, the fundamentals and be able to tie them together. If you look at your, at, your, um, at your curriculum which I have up here on the screen so you can look at it in front of you or up here and we focus on that third quarter I want to show you a few things including a mistake I made you should, nobody else caught the mistake but you should have caught it all right. The, I'll just point out the mistake right away, just to get it out of the way, is the Passion of the Christ, a biblical tour through Jerusalem's way of the cross. Now, when did we do that topic? Did we do it this quarter? No. We did it last quarter. Because I should have put it in the time period here in the winter, because that is the festal cycles of... Christmas and Lent, right? And this would have fit into Lent. Unfortunately, in a hurry to put our curriculum together, I actually put it in the wrong quarter, and so I had to bring that back in our schedule. So I want to move that out of your thought pattern for a moment. And I want to look at the rest of the catechism, to, or the rest of the curriculum, to show you how it's tied together and why what I'm saying is so important about contextualizing what you're learning. We've studied in the last... What? Since, since, uh, since Pascha, right? Uh, the last two months, basically, or whatever. When was the date of Pascha this year? Okay, whatever. The last couple of months, okay? We've studied the fall of Constantinople. We've studied, we're studying currently Occam and Luther. Piercing the darkness, an introduction to Aquinas' Summa Theologiae. 
We've also studied the epistle of Ephesians. That doesn't fit in, Deacon Sabatino. I know it doesn't fit in because that's our plan for our scripture line, right? That we would have the epistles and acts here, which doesn't really fit into the historical time period. Um, under literature, we've, we've talked about the quest for the Holy Grail. Okay, we just finished that with Ben Reinhardt. And we have Diaz Domini learning to live the Lord's day today. That's that time period in the catechism, that section in the catechism on spirituality and prayer. Learning to live the Lord's day today. We tied that in with the canonization of John Paul II, if you remember that. Father or Monsignor Pope gave that as our opening talk of this current quarter that we're in. Okay? All right. So that fits into the catechism. The armor of God, the epistle of the Ephesians fits into scripture. But what about the rest of it? What about the fall of Constantinople? Occam and Luther piercing the darkness. The quest for the Holy Grail. Let me just contextualize for you a moment and show you why... What I'm saying is is so important contextually in studying what we're studying at the Institute. The birth of Christ, the passion, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus, Pentecost. Following Pentecost, the conversion of St. Paul. With Pentecost, the church burst out of Jerusalem. We've talked about that. Remember we were dealing with the lives of the Twelve Apostles? There was a reason why we were talking about that at the time period we were talking about it. It burst out of Jerusalem and literally overtook the world. I have a quotation. I think it's from, from it maybe Eusebius. I'm not sure. But he says, look around you. He says, we've, we're everywhere. We've infiltrated your schools, your factories, your everywhere. Your, everywhere you turn, there's a Christian. We've left you nothing but your godless pagan temples. We've left you nothing. The Christians infiltrated them throughout the world. And with that the Roman Empire began to disintegrate with other factors also, yes. We know of the burning of Rome in the year 64. And and what did Nero, who did Nero blame for the burning of Rome? The Christians. And why would he have blamed the Christians? Because they had, God, they were like, they were like a disease. They were everywhere, destroying the empire, changing its nature. Refusing to worship the gods. You have to understand that to understand the persecution which was unleashed upon the church at that time. But you also have to know that something else was going on at the time. And that is that the barbarians were invading the Roman Empire from the north. It would be a short, short few, couple hundred years before the Roman Empire in the West, as it was known, was literally conquered and a barbarian was put on the throne of Caesar in the West. You have to know that to be able to understand any issue the Institute is dealing with at the time. You have to know that in 622, Mohammed received his supposed vision and took up arms And Islam spread again like a a disease, if you will, beyond the Arabian Peninsula into Palestine 
through North Africa, crossing the Straits of Gibraltar in what year? 711. Thank you, Dibby. And conquering the Iberian Peninsula. All of Spain was conquered, except for a few mountains up in the very north. In 476, I skipped this, but in 476, Rome is sacked by the barbarians. A few years earlier, in 412, Constantine declares the Edict of Milan, the freedom of the Christians. A flowering takes place in the Christian community. They come out of the closet, if you will, and suddenly big cathedrals are built. This, the, the, the landscape of the empire fundamentally changes. And with that freedom of Christianity, what else do we have? A problem occurs. Heresy begins to creep into the church. And why during that time? You have to know that the Council of Nicaea, what year was the Council of Nicaea? 325. And why is it that all of a sudden, the year 325, a council of the church has got to be called to confront who? Arius. Arius. And why is it that Arius can make such inroads into Christianity, into the church, right? Athanasius says, the world awoke, and the whole world had become Arian. What happened? My friends, you don't invent heresies while wars are taking place at your frontier, while your door is being knocked down. You don't debate the nature of God. You pick up arms to defend yourself. You debate the nature of God when you're sitting around having tea and crumpets. The freedom of the empire takes place in the, con in the context of the, of the life of the emperor Constantine. So that it's there that a hotbed is created, a hotbed for heresy, which will curdle, if you will, over the next four and five hundred years in the east. But not necessarily in the west. And why are all of the early councils taking place in the East and not in the West? The West did not have a great flowering of intellectual life. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, but not like it was in the East. Why? Because they're fighting the barbarians who are burning their cities. I don't mean to oversimplify it, but it certainly is a major factor of the movement of peoples and of thoughts. In the year 622, Mohammed comes on the scene and is knocking on the doors of the Eastern churches. The intellectual life, which had been flourishing in the East, continues to flourish, but only in safety, in monasteries. The Hezekiah movement, led by great men like St. Gregory Paulimus, St. Gregory was a monk on Mount Athos, St. John Damascene, one of the great Eastern fathers, was a monk in the monastery of St. Sabas. That's where the debates and the intellectual life was striving while Islam was coming over the mountains and through the valleys. Does that make sense? All right. So you have to be able to see that then in context. I have a few dates here about what we were just um, studying with the Institute, and I'll just lay them out for you very quickly. In 1077, Palestine falls to the Seljuk Turks. The Turks were, they were, let's just leave it, they were not nice people. They were not nice people. And let me show you what I did, just to give you a sense of what you can do. I Wikipedia'd yesterday, I just typed in to see what would come up. Okay, and about the fall of Palestine 
in 1077. It says, during the early 11th century, the Seljuk Turks invaded large portions of West Asia, and the, and the Byzantines suffered setbacks from fighting. This caused great disruption for the local population and for Western pilgrims. In 1073, Palestine was captured. The Seljuk rule was unpopular. And in 1077, Jerusalem revolted against the rule of the emir. And on his return to Jerusalem, he retook the city and massacred the local population. 1077. It would be a few short years, 20 or so years, for the First Crusade to take place. We've also studied at the Institute the quest for the Holy Grail, which is written in the year 1225, some 20 years after the Fourth Crusade. Now, any of you that read the quest for the Holy Grail knows the underlying story that is being told, the symbolism being used, is all about the land of the Saracens, the Muslims the taking of the great Saracen city called in the quest Saras, a symbol of Jerusalem. It talks about knights who are roaming around the countryside in a romantic way. Imagine, the knights have gone off to fight the enemy. They're gone and the people are dreaming about what is going on over there and they're coming back with things, with gold, with plunder. And they're also dying over there. The quest tells all about that from a popular standpoint, if you will. In the year 1225, St. Thomas Aquinas is born, who goes to the university at Naples and encounters Aristotle for the first time. And why is Aristotle being encountered for the first time in the cities of the West? In 1225 and 1250 and so forth. Why? Because the Crusaders have just come back with their plunder to the West. But you have to know that to be able to tie these together. Of course, the Fourth Crusade was terribly unsuccessful to be kind. And Islam retakes its position, reconquers the city, and eventually, within just a couple hundred years, which from a history standpoint is a very short period of time, conquers the greatest city of Christendom. It conquers Constantinople and burns it to the ground. To be able to see it in context and to be able to tie Brendan McGuire and Ben Reinhardt and Mark Wunsch together. Because in the West at that time, there certainly was a, a certain freedom a certain freedom of life. And when that freedom of life takes place, when you can sit around and eat crumpets and tea, what also takes place? Conversations about the faith. It would be only a few short years for Martin Luther to begin to advance his thoughts, which were rooted in the 12 and 1300s, which were rooted in the errors of Occam and his philosophy, which would then blossom into the greatest problem the West had experienced apart from its union with the Eastern churches, the heresy of Protestantism. You have to be able to tie those together to be able to suck out of what you're receiving from great educators like Brendan McGuire, to be able to suck the truth and to be able to connect those things and to be able to see through the quest, through the burning of Constantinople, through Occam and Luther, to be able to see the hand of God and 
as he is guiding history along its way until it comes to the fullness of life in himself. Does that make sense? All right. I, one of my part-time jobs is um, I'm an adjunct professor at, law at, a, at a local law school, and there I'm certain that this, I, I do know more than the students, and I'm here now, and I'm quite sure that you know more than I do, but for whatever reason, Deacon has asked me to speak a little bit about how I get the, try to get the most out of my um, ICC education, so that's my role here today and I'm thinking maybe about 15 minutes just to share with you as a fellow learner here how I really um, try to you know get all I can from all we're given and as um, Deacon Sabatino was speaking today I'm just overcome with um, gratitude to the Lord because I, I look at the curriculum here and you know the saying our Lord can never be outdone in generosity and the beautiful curriculum that has been offered to us the quarters the the dynamic speakers um, I, I just it's just God's gift and I'm, I'm so grateful to the Lord and to to the deacon who's um, really this is his inspiration I have a five-step process that I'll go through um, that, that I follow that might be helpful to you. And just, I don't need to put this into context because the deacon has done that for us, but always to bear in mind what's our motive or goal. And I thought his quote from the catechism this morning is is a simple way to do that and, and that is that we want to be in communion with our Lord and I think Deacon Sabatino does a great job every time we get together for a lecture is always to tell us we cannot love what we do not know and that always helps me get grounded so that's kind of the context in which I'm speaking I would say that, let me give you my five steps, and um, I'd be interested to, to get your ideas about how you do this, but number one, I, I try to fully engage in the prayer that begins each talk, and we've lost Father Joe here, but I feel so blessed, and I wanted to thank him He's like our chaplain, and he the way he leads us in prayer at the beginning of each session is so inspirational to me, and I wanted to thank him for that. So number one, fully engage in prayer. Number two, I always pick up a flyer for the evening's talk, and I keep that with my notes. That reminds me when the talk was, who the speaker was, and um, it just helps me coordinate in my, my note taking. The third thing is taking notes during the talk. The fourth step is organizing or classifying your notes when you get home. And finally, taking the opportunity, giving yourself the time and space to prayerfully reflect over your materials. So let me just break that down a little bit. 
um, fully engage in the prayer that begins each talk. And another thing that the deacon said earlier this morning, just bearing in mind, as as St. John said of Jesus, Jesus was fully aware that he had come from God and was going to God. And that's really what it's all about. Uh, the second step, take and keep a flyer for the evening's talk. That's easy and, and that's self-explanatory. Third step, taking notes. Melanie will discuss uh, in detail various methods of note-taking. In general, I would say we have very gifted speakers and lecturers and they're they're well organized. So oftentimes they'll say at the beginning, I'm going to cover this topic in three parts. And you can write down those three parts and then fill in as you can. That's what I do. If there's a handout, I follow along with the handout. For example, Father Scalia, when he was talking about Veritas Splendor within the last couple of weeks, gave a beautiful handout. And I've heard several lectures on Veritas Splendor, and his was beautiful in its simplicity. You could walk away and think, I have some idea of what this document means in the big picture. And with that handout, I just took less notes and really followed along with the handout that he gave us. The fourth step would be organize your notes or classify your notes. So I do this periodically, maybe weekly or bi-weekly. So I'll come home and I have my notes that I, and I attach the flyer to that set of notes. I know who the speaker was or how many sessions there were. And if time allows, I type my notes so that I can use them. They're easier to use later. But at least I do try to read through the notes and try to recollect what was, what was this all about? What's, if I had to summarize the point of those one or two lectures, what would it be? What questions were answered? That sort of thing. When I retype the notes, it might be shorter. Maybe, maybe my notes weren't all that great that time, and I just try to take the, the kernel, the best piece, um, out of those notes as I can. And then I organize my notes. And you've all seen the binder that Melanie put, put together. But I begin by classifying just by topic, theology, philosophy, sacred scripture, so I just order my notes according to the, the, the discipline involved. And this um, really helps, I feel, to synthesize the material. So for example, we've had a couple of different opportunities to learn about um, fides et ratio, faith and reason, the encyclical. So I might have, by now, three sets of notes on that encyclical. And it gives me the chance to put it all together and really go deeper and try to deepen my understanding of what that encyclical is all about. So that's one reason for not only note-taking, but categorizing your notes so that you can make the most out of those notes, put them into context. 
Now in terms of the subject matter, like theology, I break that down into actually the four parts of the catechism that the deacon was talking about. Does this fit into the creed? Remember we had that beautiful lecture series, I think it was last year by Father Scalia, on the creed, or the sacraments and liturgy, or a moral theology, life in Christ. But you might find a different way to break down theology. There's different ways of doing it. I just find that once you begin collecting your notes, you'll see that you have quite a bit, and you can make better use of them by, by ordering them. Um, the, the literature I do a little differently. I will try to put my notes, I, I get the book, I put my notes in the book, and I put the book in my library. And I encourage all of you, if you don't have a library, to start one. Uh, you can start with your Bible. But it's a beautiful thing to do, and even trying to collect the encyclicals that we've had the opportunity to study, if you have Fides Ratio, you might have a lecture two years ago, bring it again to the lecture that in the current period. In terms of my coordinating sacred scripture, I don't know, are any of you familiar with the great adventure that was put together by Jeff Cavins? Okay, I, um, if you're not familiar with it and you're interested, I can share that later. But basically he breaks down the story of salvation history into a unified story. And it's broken down into 12 periods. And within each period is, he assigns certain books of the Bible. And it's a really neat way to get a general idea of what what's the story all about. Um, so I break down my scripture studies into those 12 periods and then with the New Testament I um, have like a, a section for each book in the Bible or, or maybe Paul's epistles, that sort of thing, breaking it down that way. And that beautiful, beautiful talks we had, I uh, was it Dr. Stephen, uh, the guy we just had, Stephen Smith, thanks. And the beautiful handout he had, now that's, that's a great, I mean, the, the thing about the Institute is, I mean, I don't want to go down my advertising track, but you would pay $1,000 to get that kind of a course in a university. But anyway, that's another story. It's a, it's a beautiful piece that he provided us with. Um, and then Deacon Sabatino had given us a couple of lectures on Dei Verbum, how to study sacred scripture. That's another one. Get the, I don't think it was an encyclical, oh, it was a Vatican II document. Um, but that's another thing I save and, and look at later, and sometimes we, you begin to see things we've had repeated and that really help deepen our understanding. Uh, I also include, maybe I'll go to a talk at my parish or read a book like one of the Matthew Kelly books, and I take notes on that and I put that in my binder too. Uh, so that's the fourth step, would be organizing or ordering the notes. And perhaps the biggest challenge for me is step five, and that is uh, prayerfully studying or reflecting on the notes. I mean, all this for what? Um, if we're not, I'm talking about myself, but if I'm not 
loving more or changing my life or being the person that the Lord wants me to be is for nothing. So I really try to um, take time in silence to really reflect on, on all that I've been given. Um, and the Institute gives us so much. It's, I don't know that I'll ever have enough time to really reflect on all of it. But um, finally, one line comes to mind from uh, Dr. Cutterback, and that was, nothing profound ever happens by accident. And that, that really struck me because I think we're all in the same boat in the sense that we really want to deepen our understanding of Christ and our faith and that takes a lot of discipline and you know here we are all together on a Saturday morning we ought to pat ourselves on the back because we're trying I would say. For 20 years I waited for the Institute to come along and I used to pick up books like Another Sort of Learning by Father Shaw or uh, Father Hardin's The Catholic Lifetime Reading Plan and I would be determined to follow through with the reading plan and I'd come home from work and think I'm going to break open the Summa Theologica and <laughs> that never happened and now the Lord has given me the Institute and given me the wherewithal to see break open the theologi Summa Theologica, of course, with Dr. Cutterback. But okay, I just wanted to add that. Thank you. And just so you all know, Teresa is part of a larger plan um, for, uh, for some of our Duke and Altum going deeper with the ICC education. Um, and she and also Leslie Murphy. Leslie, can you wave so everyone knows who you are? We've been having some inside meetings with other folks as well, but they've been really instrumental in helping us think through how can we help others dive deeper into the faith and make a difference. So, Dibby, you have a question or? Uh -huh. One thing that I've added is um, that it goes with nothing, nothing perfect happens by accident. Is I'll go to mass and, and I'll go, oh gosh, this priest. But the priest's homily that day mm -hmm. made for me that day. And as it is for everybody. And what I have found is the Institute of Catholic Culture has given me a better ability to listen to a homily yeah. and get what I'm supposed to get out of it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And for those watching online, what Dibby was just saying, sorry about that, uh, was that the Institute has actually been helpful to her when listening to homilies and in other situations because it gives a uh, deeper and broader context and some background that maybe, uh, you know, when you're in a 10 minute homily, you may not have time to, to get into all that. So thank you for that. Okay, I don't want to take up too, too much of your time, but I did want to talk about uh, note-taking. So a lot of you may have already picked up one of those ICC binders, and um, at the end of my talk, I'll kind of go through um, more of the, the details of how to use that, because I think it is important if you picked one of those up, know that that's really just a skeleton. So unless you're able to put meat on the bones, uh, and Deacon Sabatino's walking around, if anyone didn't get one, even if you're not wanting one 
permanently, that's fine. I won't be offended. But just to be able to follow along and look and get some ideas. Um, but it, it is just a skeleton. Unless you're able to put meat on the bones, put your notes in there and really start to use it. It's just a, it's just a binder. It's not going to do any good. So, why is it important to take notes? Just very briefly, and I feel like for many of us, this may be a walk down memory lane. A lot of us went to college. We all learned to take notes. We may still take notes in work settings, but it never even occurs to us to do that in a parish hall. And so I did just want to remind everyone, um, that, uh, note taking is important. Specifically, it involves semantic encoding the cognitive processing and encoding of sensory input um, so and I can go into all the science and the testing that, that we've um, that has been done but taking notes actually helps your brain remember better because what you're doing is ta taking it in via your ear and then with your mind deciding what am I going to write down which is determining what is important um, so uh, by taking Taking these notes, you're actually doing something that's going to help you down the road to remember. Oops. Remember, your goal is not to actually transcribe a lecture or a presentation. It's not to take minutes. Your goal is to, again, process the information, determine what's important, and write down key concepts, ideas, and using your own words and your own system, write that down so that then you have not a complete record, but enough so that you can go back and find it useful for recall. What to write down? Um, obviously, facts, dates, names, book references, things like that, uh, doctrines, ideas, definitions, anything that is new to you, you're going to want to write that down. Um, anything that is an image, a diagram, visual cues are really helpful. Uh, and then, obviously, if you have your own questions, write those down as it's happening. Um, your educational goals also will help you with your note-taking. Note so through what am I wanting to learn? Why am I here in the first place? Because it's for more than just the croissants and orange juice. Um, so think through what am I wanting to learn? And that's actually going to help you filter that information so that you're only writing down that which is important. And again, I just want to reinforce what Deacon Sabatino said earlier about preparing beforehand. Make sure if it's a literature lecture or a Bible study, take the time to actually read the text because your entire understanding of that um, ICC hour is going to be different than if you're coming at that text for the first time. Um, and come early, sit close to the front. If a professor's using a whiteboard or he has a PowerPoint presentation, but you're all the way in the back route, you have an Alice von Hildebrand who spoke very softly. You know, you want to be up front, you want to be engaged, and also avoid any distractions that may be going on in the back. So those are just things, again, I hope I'm not, I don't want to be talking down to you, but these are just good reminders uh, to keep in mind. But I think especially in this room, these are all things that we're following. Um, there are various ways of taking notes. People have different methods. Um, do consider trying to use an outline as you go along. For some people that's too much and you may not be able to do that, but even some sort of bullet points with main points that the speaker may be going over, and even you can get into some subheadings and things like that. But it, again, don't let that organization get in the way of listening and processing the lecture. So if that's too much, abandon it. Just take down one solid sheet of information. 
There's also, uh, I do have a few handouts over there. If you didn't get them, you can get them after the lecture. One is on the Cornell note-taking system. I don't know if you all are familiar with this method, but you take a sheet of paper and you have a line down um, about three quarters of the way through. And on the one wider section, you're going to write in your standard notes, bullet points, outline, however you want to do it. And then on the left-hand side, either during the lecture or afterwards, you can go through and kind of write in cues, things to help you remember things, just simple words and phrases of what was covered in the lecture. It's a helpful system for um, recalls and review and memorization. So as you're going through, you can kind of just get those cue words um, and figure out what was important. If you want more details about that, please do take that handout um, and because I don't want to spend tons of time. There are also a third method that you can use. So I just kind of went over bullets and, and outlines would be one. The Cornell method would be another. Another one to consider for some people, especially if you're a visual learner, is the mind map, right? You've all seen these where you start with a central idea. So in that circle, I'd want to write in the topic of the lecture. And then as things come up, you have subheadings coming out with, and so you're actually drawing circles and, and arrows and things pointing together and how things are fitting, fitting into place. So eventually you're building a tree. Um, but I've, I've found that a useful thing to use. And that's again called a mind map. Um, and then afterwards, just make sure you're reviewing your notes. So hopefully within 24 hours, as Teresa said, that really does, it is proven to help with recall. And then make sure, as Teresa was talking about, you have some sort of indexing system, a table of contents, a binder, a filing cabinet, however you want to do it. Um, because if you can't find it later on, the notes weren't completely useless because, again, you have that semantic encoding going on. Um, however, you're not going to be able to find them and use them when you really need them. So, so if you all have your binder here, um, if you open it up, this, the binder that I did has the following tabs. History, philosophy, theology, scripture, morality, literature, miscellaneous, and reference. And as Teresa was mentioning, she has her own system that she's been using. This may or may not be helpful to you. If it's not, you'll see I had over there on that table some just write-on dividers. So if you prefer to use your own divider system, that's totally fine. And I would also encourage you to come up with your own tabs. Again, use your goals for education as a guide for how you're going to organize your information. So if you're hounded by Protestants at work who are always on you about being Catholic, or if you just feel regret over for all the history classes that you zoned out of in elementary and high school, the, you're going to want a tab for those topics. Um, so there may be things of importance to you, whether it's marriage, relationships, apologetics, even things like biblical prophecy, maybe something of interest to you. You can make a tab for that in your binder, and then you're going to start filling that up with news clips, articles, uh, and lecture notes that have to do with that specific topic.
And let's see. Okay, so the indexing system. How does this work? If you open to the history tab, you'll see the index. So I'm at a history lecture. I'm at Brendan McGuire's Fall of Constantinople. And I take some notes. What do I do with those afterwards? I toss them in the back seat of my car. <laughs> what should I do with them? Um, what I should do with them is hole punch them and put them in this binder system, putting a, a, making sure that they have a date and a page number at the bottom right hand corner or the bottom left or wherever you're wanting to put it, but just make it standardized, just write in that number and then put them in this, this binder and in the index you're just going to put the topic with the page number and that's going to help keep you organized. You're not going to have so many things, especially at the beginning, that this is going to become confusing and especially since you've already divided, divided this into history, you're only dealing with history topics so it's not going to take you long to scan later on and find the information that you need. Does that make sense to everybody? Yes. Pretty clear and, and easy. Now if you switch over to the scripture tab, I think I skipped some things. Oh, I forgot all about this. Do you all mind if I go back one step? Um, I totally forgot. When you're taking, this was another note-taking tip tool that I had, and a lot of you probably already know this, but use clues like an exclamation mark, cue for quotation or question if you prefer. Um, those are the quotation marks. Should you prefer to do that? Uh, use sticky notes. Sometimes people find those those really helpful to put in asides or if you're wanting to do a follow-up question um, or highlighting things. So uh, we have highlighter packs over there. They cost about $5. We also have individual highlighters over there. Everybody hopefully has seen Deacon Sabatino's uh, Bible. If you haven't, you should take a look. Uh, it's, very, it's a rainbow. Um, but doing the same thing with your notes, either as you're going or afterwards to color code things. And again, if you have a specific topic that is precious to you, like prophecy, you can always designate a special color highlighter to that topic. And then anytime it comes up in any of your lectures, you use that color to go through and highlight. So we're back to the index system. If you switch over to scripture with me, after the index you're going to see, I went ahead and put in a couple things. So the outline of the Bible that you probably would have seen with, Dibby likes that, uh, with um, the Salvation History Series, and we've done this with a few other things. So that that is there for your reference, as well as two maps, just one of the ancient world, and then one of specifically of Israel in New Testament times. Now these three things could actually go in your reference, under your reference tab, Again, this is a skeleton, and it's for you to use and grow with. So if you prefer to put these in reference, move them over to reference. I have no problem with that. But um, I just wanted to let you know that those things were there. Then if you go to, over to our reference tab, you're going to see a few different items. Everybody with, there with me? So we have first the books of the Bible. Um, so hopefully you all have these memorized by now. If not, you can use this is a memorization tool uh, to, to memorize the books of the Bible. Again, this could actually go under the scripture tab. Which should it go under? It's up to you and what you find more useful. And then the next page uh, is some biblical references to common apologetical themes. So if you see, for instance, faith alone, Romans 3.28, Galatians 2.16, you see those are bolded. Those are two verses that are often used by Protestants to prove text and say, you know, 
we believe in righteousness apart from the works of the law. Well, these other texts that comes texts that come after are responses to that, putting it in the biblical context. So you could um, use this either on its own, or you can go to your Bible and go to Romans 3.28, and then in the margin, write down some of these other verses. Um, so that's just a little helpful whatever that I wanted to put in. Yes? The, the primary one that they would go to? But she's noting that some have are bolded and some are bolded with an asterisk. Is that what you're? Right. Yeah. I actually don't know what the difference is. I would have to ask. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave that to Deacon Sabatino. Uh, he was the one who prepared all of this. Um, the next page is quotations. And this isn't something I mentioned, but um, even in Deacon Sabatino's lecture, he gave all sorts of beautiful quotes. And just imagine if you went through after a lecture and spent five minutes just writing those in. Or as they come up, if you're using this binder at each institute event, the next page is terms and concepts. So as things are being um, are coming up that are new to you, same sort of thing. This can become your own little dictionary. And I gave the example there of homoousios uh, versus homoousios, you know, the Greek word for of of one essence versus of similar essence. Big her heretical controversy back at the time of the Council of Nicaea. So anything that comes up to that that you find helpful, put it in here. Just it and all of a sudden you're going to have a whole dictionary at your fingertips. Then I have various notes pages. The first one is just a very basic notes page. Very easy, reminding you to put in uh, the date, the title of the talk, and then space for your notes. The next page actually is my adaptation of the Cornell method. So you'll see on the most of the page is just space for taking notes. But on the right I have three boxes, just as kind of visual cues to help you remember remember things, and I used to love to do this. So either at the beginning of the lecture, if the speaker says, the point of my talk this evening is blank with a thesis statement, you put it in there. Or at the end of the evening, after you've listened to and processed the information, then you can put in a one-sentence summary of what the talk was about, and that's your one point that you're taking away from the lecture. The middle section is just for references, quotations, anything that uh, you, you may want to access later on that you find useful. And then the bottom little box there is just for questions for you to follow up on. Um, so that may or may not be helpful to you. As, this is kind of what I do when I'm taking notes. And I actually just do this on my own with a blank sheet of paper. You don't have to have a prepared sheet. Um, but if that's helpful, you've got it. Then the next thing is a study aid primarily for Bible study. Again, if it's helpful to you, wonderful. If it's not, don't worry about it. But it gives you some guidelines for when you're going over scripture, either on your own or in the context of a lecture like the Ephesians. So you're wanting to make sure that you have a summary or an overview of the book that you're studying, um, writing down any places, names of people, um, special events, and then any doctrines that this, may, this book or this scripture passage may be concerning. 
And then it has space in here for a word study. Um, and biblical scholars actually do a lot of word studies. Obviously, we wouldn't do as much of that in this context. But if there are specific words. So again, I, I reference Romans again here, righteousness apart from works. And you can write that down with a scripture verse and then a little explanation just to give you that visual reminder. And then at the bottom, again, a space for questions, reflection to follow up. So hopefully that's helpful. And then at the end, uh, just some blank paper, because obviously, hopefully, you're going to be filling this in. And actually, I've seen from other people that they, they brought all of their institute notes with them. So they actually have meat on the bones um, already. But um, I hope that's helpful. And again, don't forget, this is a work in progress. You're going to learn what works for you as you go along. If you've never taken notes before, that's okay. Try it out, see how it goes. But even with, I was thinking with Deacon Sabatino, he was doing such a wonderful job earlier in kind of taking us through this historical timeline. How many of you wrote that down? Because if you didn't, how many of you can recite it from memory? I sure can't. Now, I didn't write it down either. I apologize, Deacon Sabatino. Um, I'll have to go and listen to the recorded lecture. Uh, but this is a work in progress. Be patient with yourself. But I hope that this has given you some tips and tools to help you as you consider to make sure that you're fully engaging with all of this information. Thank you guys so much and God bless. Okay, questions, thoughts, comments, not necessarily endorsements for the Institute, but something that maybe an insight you have, something that's worked for you, something that you've struggled with and been frustrated with. It's okay, we can be positive and negative. I, I don't. Oh, here's that. <laughs> the only thing that I will add to the notebook and to um, you know, what Diddy's done and, and what other people is the CDs. And what we started doing, because unfortunately, unlike a lot of you folks, we've only been able to join the Institute for the last year and a half or so. So what I've done is the CDs I pull from there, um, or that I pull from the down, uh, download from the website, I'll also have built a binder where I've got the CD, whatever handouts went with that, and then whatever notes we've captured. A lot of times we listen to them in the car and road or whatever, but if we do sit at the house, whatever notes we captured from there. So I've got all that binder worth of material as well. Wow. Just something else about you know, you guys are quite inspiring to me. I have to tell you that it's 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 amazing what you do. You know, on that same on that same point about contextualizing, also just you're contextualizing your topics. So the institute's done a number of topics in this particular time, and if you're able to follow that on the CDs, um, then also just doing a little bit of internet research, or maybe you got a, a, a Catholic encyclopedia at home or something, and you can look something up, and all of a sudden the, the connections start to 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 make sense, right? It makes sense why. St. Thomas is writing and, and commenting on Aristotle at this particular time. And I know it because I know the context of history and the movement of people. And another aspect that we didn't mention that's extremely important, maps. Using your maps. Now you brought the maps up, but I mean, use maps. So helpful to understand what's going on in history. Okay? Other thoughts or comments? I, I just, I'm not a very good note-taker. But when I come to a Catholic culture institute or any any time, I'm calling it that matter, it is, 
I asked, I prayed the Holy Spirit, and I said, what is it that you want me to take out of this? This is just me. What do you want me to take away from here? And it just, it's like a bright light flashes in front of my face. That is what the Lord wants me to take. And that's what I write down. Good. Good. And so I don't have lots of notes, but I have the things that are very personal. Wonderful. Wonderful. I love that the yeah. one takeaway yep. that the yep. Spirit shows you. Yep. Really, you're not going to be able to remember every single date. Yeah, something Melanie and I talked about in the office, and, and Monica also, we're, we're dealing with this, this subject of how to improve our education, is talking about providing some maybe some talking points following a talk. And this is a good thing that you're talking about. I don't learn unless I actually teach it or say something about it, right? And I would encourage you, incorporate what you're learning. Find ways to incorporate that into your everyday conversation. So the day following a talk, look for excuses in conversation with people to direct Direct it in this particular way. That's all. Margaret, I had a follow-up. Yep. I just want to add one other thing. I, I'm, I have to admit this, ladies and gentlemen. I'm a captain. You know, I don't get bored. I'm retired. So the other thing I do is I listen for a book, a recommendation. We're having the expert up there saying, oh, read this book. I write it down, and the next day I've got that book on the way to my house. One of the things that, like you, I, I learned was by teaching. And so being able to take this back to cate catechesis for my 6th and 7th graders over the years is so much fun. And I don't know if they appreciate it, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I can't count the number of times I've gone into class one evening and just, you know, just the excitement and wanting to share. They're going off into tangents about something that I just heard through the ICC that I'm able to tie in. And I hope give them the excitement and share that joy. Wonderful, wonderful. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.